And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Son of Slovenia, cool as hell. He scores the ball and he rebounds well. Don't fight the future. Here comes Luca. In Welcome to 77 Minutes, a Dallas Mavericks podcast, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm Tim Cato. I am the host of this show. You probably know that by now. We've got Mike Pellucci, the co-host, something you also should know. I would think. I think they know by now. But we have a special guest, Tim. That's that's more important than either of us. Uh, always. Always. Our our guests are the podcast. That's That's what we do it for. We do it for them. I mean, that's not really true. We have like one guest every month. So there's a lot of there's a lot of episodes in between. I don't know. But they're better when we have guests. Good. And we got a good guest today. I guess you wrote a book. That's more than <laughs> anything I've done lately. Jake Fisher, how are you? Doing well. And the fact that you have gone on the record here and said I'm more important than you is enough of a win for me to go home <laughs> and call it a day. <laughs> a lot of people are more important than me. This isn't just something I said to you, you know, in a, in a casual conversation. This is going to be on public record. It's public, so and and that's that's what a podcast is to me. It's it's the public like it's the it's the law of the land. Um, Someday, when this book launches the Jake Fisher Media Empire, and there is a radio show, and Tim goes on said radio show, this is going to be a drop. He's just going to play it whenever you try to say anything. People don't so, know this, but every podcast episode aired goes into the Library of Congress. We record that for human history. So <laughs> it's out there. This is the only Dallas Mavericks podcast. As you guys know, listening by now, it's the only one. So we've got to have a, a formal record of this whole thing. So Jake, how would, how would you describe yourself other than, uh, the, than book author at this point? Um, I know your history, but I can't remember all of it. Uh, that, and then obviously tell us about the book real quick. Yeah. I mean, I'm an NBA reporter right now. I do most of my stuff at Bleacher Report. I write a weekly reported column there. Um, that's kind of been my, my calling card throughout my career. I started off at Slam, pit stopped at Sports Illustrated out of school for a bunch of years. And, and I've always been – I find new information from people around the league, and that's what I did for this book. I talked to over 300 people and found – and I, I really do think that it's virtually entirely comprised of new original storytelling or furthered public info that you've heard previously. Um, and it's got details you know, for, for Mavs fans at the jump here on – Christoph Porzingis' draft, some stuff about Giannis in 2013, how the Mavericks factored in that we will definitely talk about. Um, and it's got, I mean, it really follows Hinky Sixers, the Celtics moving on from the big three, the Lakers kind of fumbling the final years of old Kobe, some crazy internal drama within the DeMarcus Cousins, Vivek Kings, and a lot more stuff. So if anyone uh, wants to cop one, a copy on Amazon or bookshop.org or my publisher Triumph or Barnes & Noble, I would, I would greatly appreciate it. It's called Built to Lose. There's the pitch. 
we're gonna t- we're gonna talk some Mavericks, and then I, I want to actually circle back and, and talk about some of these these stories, some of these uh, anecdotes, and and just scenes. Really, scenes might be the right word uh, that that do involve the Mavericks, e- even in, in kind of a tertiary manner. It's it's called "Built to Lose: How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever." I know it's a bit of a mouthful, but yeah, that that is the official title. Uh, so so go find go find it online wherever books are sold. Um, yes, thank you for correcting me, Jake L. Fisher. Uh, <laughs> as your I think I think that was a byline I saw once or twice on on SV Nation, where uh, me and me and Jake go in some some capacity way back. Uh, but yeah, I want to talk about Mavericks just for a little bit. You know, this is a uh, the only Mavericks podcast, uh, certainly the only one uh, that I'm aware of. Um, but I also never, you know, I'm not I, I wasn't didn't really know about. It. I think I invented podcasts, so this is would make sense that this is the first uh, Mavericks one. Did you know that they have the eighth? best record in the league right now we're recording tuesday afternoon so things may shift or change but the eighth best for a season that i think honestly for the totality of the season has felt more pessimistic than anything else it feels like there's been a lot of negative storylines and pessimistic storylines that have followed them uh, especially from the disappointing start and they're the eighth best team in the league they're fifth in the western conference they are significantly better win percentage wise and seeding wise than they were last season it doesn't it doesn't feel like that's true if if you were to just kind of read or or take in the Mavericks season only from let's say headlines and and national media uh segments and and things like that which have focused on on the downside and and yet here this team is I don't I don't I don't know what that says about them because I also feel negative about the team or feel you know I, I don't feel glaringly positive I, I don't know as an outsider if you have a different perspective uh well my perspective on Dallas I mean they didn't really come on my radar in terms of like a day-to-day um they're you know in the conversations I have people on the league until around the deadline when that that little rumor popped up about them sniffing around on Chris Stapps. Um, and, and at the time, it did make sense because, you know, they were really, really injured and had issues with, you know, COVID and health and safety protocols like everyone knows about. And I think they just they started out of the gate slow and the shooting numbers across the board. I remember that doing my research for that story, like Maxi Klebo is by far the best three point shooter on the team at the time. And maybe he still is. But like any team if, if has an intent to contend for the playoffs. That's not where you want to be. You don't want Maxi Kleba being your sharpshooter alongside your all-star players. So I think, you know, they got healthier. Um, it seems like more shots have started to fall. Um, it seems like maybe there's been some more chemistry to evolve over the season. Jalen Brunson really, you know, I think played a huge factor in solidifying uh, the backcourt aside from Luka. And, uh, I mean, they have the talent to be – I think this is where everyone kind of expected them to be in the preseason, right? Right behind the top tier of teams in the West. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's weird. It's, I was saying this to Tim before, I feel like we've known for a while what this team is because there's been so little roster turnover for the past two years. The ongoing challenge remains contextualizing what they are relative to what the rest of the league is. Like I watch this team sometimes and I'm like, okay, I think they're they're good. I think they are a good team that is made better than good because they have maybe the m- most important offensive force in the league right now. Where does that get you? Well, even in spite of everything, in spite of your two stars coming back into the season, not really fully prepared for it, in spite of playing through a COVID outbreak before the NBA started making more schedule allowances, uh, in spite of just everybody dealing with a long season and 
these guys actively resting Porzingis and Doncic and now some role players depending on the night. Somehow this is the eighth best team in the league. So what does that mean? What does that mean going into the postseason? I don't know. And uh, I don't know if nothing else. I mean, it's fun to still be intrigued, right? Just when you think you figured this team out, maybe you haven't. Maybe this the recipe is in place for them to go further in the postseason than Tim and I have suspected they might be able to this year. Yeah, I mean, I think they were always going to be healthy, best case scenario. I think they were always going to be a really plucky mid-tier team that that might win around and might, you know, mess around and, and make the conference finals if they draw the right matchup and they have a perfect, you know, output from supporting cast and all that stuff. And that obviously a lot of that depends on KP's health and what he can do on both sides of the floor. I mean, we, we've talked about it off air, Tim, but I, I know um, – the, that that team was really built this offseason defensively on the fact that Porzingis was going to be able to clean up a lot of stuff from the perimeter at the rim. And that's what was not the case in the beginning of the year. And now seems to be things have solidified a little, even though he's still in and out of the lineup. But I, I still I still don't think they're, you know, if you told me the Mavs won the West in, in a couple months, I'd be, or a month or whatever the playoff schedule is. I don't know. The, the calendar is all out of whack. But if you told me they were to win the West, I'd be a little shocked. I would be, but I wouldn't be like absolutely floored. Like the world is falling apart and this is, you know, the hell is frozen over, but I don't expect them to be there. Maybe, maybe they'll make it out of the first, maybe they'll give somebody a run for their money in the second, but this is a young team. Like right. The, the Mavs right now are where like the Warriors were when they took the Clippers to seven games and beat Denver and battled San Antonio more so. And like battling the Clippers in that first round last year, versus being a real threat to win the title, I think. Is there a preferred realistic first-round opponent that if you're Dallas, you would want to see right now? Um, Realistically, it's going to be Denver or the Clippers. I mean, sure. it's, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to see it not being one of those two. Yeah, I suppose it's still possible they could drop down, but I, beyond that, but it's, it's unlikely at this point. So right. if you're... If you're Let's put it in that light then. Is there one of those teams you feel like Dallas matches up better against and you think, all right, that's that's a better shot of them getting out of this first round? Um, I mean, I think the Clippers – I mean, I think narratives at a certain point are real in our business and in fan because they do – some of them are real in, in reality. And I think the Clippers coming back in to another first-round matchup where they got a scare against that team. And, and um, I, I think that might be – especially like there's pressure on the Clippers right now to do something. Um, there's, cr- there's pressure on that front office. Um, I mean, they got to capitalize on this Kawhi Leonard, Paul George parent. They just have to. And I think seeing a familiar foe that gave them problems and Luca, you know, was the star of the all stars at a certain point in that series. I think they might be motivated in Denver. A similar fact, like they're really playing like, no one believes in us. Jamal Murray's out, type of thing. Um, I, I think, I think that I would say the Clippers might be a little more scary, just based off of the bodies they have to throw at Luca. That'd probably be my guess. Yeah, and Luca is still someone who can can be bothered by a really tall, athletic defender. You know, not stopped by any means, but I think if there's one one type of archetype to archetype of defender that still bothers him, that's that's kind of the one. But I think that's a fair way to sum up the Mavericks. You know, it's that it took all season for them to get back where most fans and analysts thought they would be to start the year. Um, and during that whole season, a lot of their flaws were exposed and shown. 
I think that's where the negativity of the season comes from, even though they're kind of at where we thought they should be. Um, and, and if you're, if you're running below that measure, then any kind of peaks, uh, you know, or overperformance isn't actually an overperformance. It's, it's you trying to get back to where you were, um, or it's you trying to rebuild a reputation of, of what, you know, it was expected of you before the season. So I think that is, is probably the reasons that, that we've had kind of a, uh, a, 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 a tinge of negativity to this whole thing. Um, and, and I do think some of the storylines are there too. You know, we've, you know, me and Mike have talked about Luca KP as a, as a, you know, their personal dynamics. We've talked about that a little bit. Uh, it's been acknowledged by the team. Uh, the, the fact that, uh, there's, you know, these salacious yellow journalism reporters out here saying that KP's, you know, on the trading block, that's not helping things. What's up with that? How how yeah, Mark Cuban said it's not true, so it it can't be true, Jake. Uh, I I don't know. I don't know. I'm just going. I'm just going with the the sources of information that I trust explicitly here. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty remarkable when someone reports something that is a little disadvantageous to that organization's agenda. They immediately just are able to go out and say it didn't happen, and people believe them. There's a certain coach in Toronto who said that a certain story I wrote about a former assistant of his. It's completely false when I said in the story that he didn't know it was happening underneath his nose. So what do you think he's going to say? What do you think, what do you think Cuban's going to say? I mean, I, I made it pretty clear. I tried to in that story that um, they weren't shopping him. But I think at a at certain point in time, what was that, late January, early February, he wasn't able to really play – at all. Like he couldn't really move. So I, I, an executive I talked to that Cuban was really upset about, but there's a reason why these things are anonymous because you'd get fined for talking about another player on the record. Right. Um, they, they compared it to a scarecrow, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, like he couldn't guard the rim. He couldn't stay healthy. And this was supposed to be an all-star right on the same timeline as Luca that they traded two first round picks for to be his partner for the better part of a decade. Like, I mean, it, it makes full sense that before his value got even lower to, to sniff around and kick the tires on. I'm not saying they were calling every single team and saying, do you want Chris Tosperzingas? Please take him off our hands. But I think any smart any smart front office gauges the value on any player on their team that isn't a Luka-type player. Like, if your guy's not a like a surefire all-NBA candidate every season – you're not doing your job if you're not considering trade opportunities to upgrade your roster. Yeah, and, and jokes aside, when I when I wrote about your report, um, I, I thought one of the things I emphasized, and, and I, like you said, I thought you did a good job of, was the way that you framed it very carefully and meticulously. Uh, and that, you know, to some level, we know how the general NBA media kind of consume stuff. And if you put Kristaps Porzingis and trade next to each other, and yep. and you're saying that he's on, you know, in in the in the way that you know in the report that you did, everybody's going to take it as oh he's you know being shopped, he's being traded, he's not untouchable, whatever it is. And, and there is a connotation that comes with that. Read the story. <laughs> read the story, and and also and, and to be fair, I think that the general NBA fan still doesn't quite have an understanding of how trade dynamics work and front offices, how much they actually talk to each other, how how you can talk about a player who you don't actually intend to trade, um, how you can talk about a player uh, in, in hypotheticals. There's there's a lot of conversations that go on that you reported on. You, like You were very meticulous in the ways that it was talked about. Um, and, and the story did get simplified a lot. Engaging trade interest, not to interrupt you, but I mean, sure, ter- terminology 
NBA fans might not necessarily know how things happen behind the scenes, but semantics matter. Like gauging interest is a hell of a lot different than shopping, you know? Yeah, it does. I mean, look, this, the other aspect of this is, and this is not, this is not a fun one to discuss, but it is true. If Christoph Porzingis is playing like bubble Christoph Porzingis, there's no story for you to write about because never in a million years would they think about trading him. If Christoph Porzingis' performance becomes commensurate to what they were expecting of him, then you can call them all day and they're not going to talk to you regardless, much less shop him. So there is a very large element of this that does not come down to semantics. It doesn't come down to what Jake finds out and reports. It comes down to the fact that uh, it's not working out the way that people wanted it to. And that's what opens the door for any level of trade interest because I guarantee you, Teams might talk to Dallas all day long. They know not to ask about Luka Doncic. That's never, ever happening because Luka Doncic is playing at a level to where they're never going to get rid of him. That just isn't the case right now with Kristaps Porzingis. And we don't know if it will get to that point again. And that's why I thought it was newsworthy. Like, not to be inflammatory and, and stoke the fires and whatever, but when there's a player who's an all-star who's considered to be a fabric of that organization and a cornerstone and theoretically at the time – I mean, last year in the bubble and all that, like Kristaps and Luca have been considered at points to be very close friends. When that guy's all of a sudden now considered to be somewhat available, even if he's not being shopped, that is newsworthy, I think. Yeah, yeah, it is. Especially given how good he was in the bubble, right? Well, I, that guy isn't being discussed, but he just hasn't looked like that guy very often this year. Yeah, I think in the bubble, I, I was I was not in the bubble. During the bubble, I think I texted Tim at one point, like, you were lucky that you're on this beat. Like, these two guys together, this is going to be awesome. Like, And then he got hurt and, you know, things happened. But that's, I think, you know, a big theme of my book and a big thing, a theme of NBA team building altogether. Like, a lot of what this comes down to is, is, is unforeseen variables are going to pop up, you know, Players are going to stop liking each other. A guy's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get fired, whatever. And it's how teams pivot and move forward that ultimately are the ones that are still around and kicking and competing year after year after year. So, you know, given that, I mean, look, you from your job being a national reporter to the research in this book, I mean, it's going to overlap regardless. But what does a modern front office need to be successful in this climate, right? It's very different than what it was 15 years ago. How it's one thing to say you've got to be able to pivot. What are the core skill sets? And what are the kind of the commonalities of the of the teams that are succeeding right now in this new you know, new reality that doesn't seem like it's changing anytime soon? I think one of the bigger revelations I learned in reporting the book was talking to one executive who said to me that we'd be surprised how many franchises enter any given calendar year without a stated goal in mind. Like for some teams, it's making the playoffs. For some teams, it's making the conference finals. For some teams, it's, you know, whatever. A lot of teams, apparently, from what people have told me, just like, you know, clap their hands together and say, let's run the ball out. And then it's like, let's see what happens. And I think having that type of uniform direction, that goal is something that bands players together, coaches together, front office executives together. And that synergy helps a whole franchise kind of hum at one point in time. And then, you know, when you're able to have, you know, transparent conversations when a Kristaps a situation pops up or whatever, you know, that's how you're, you're set up, um, like, like that context, that backdrop of, you know, we're trying to be this, we're trying to be that. We have a two-year window where, you know, if you're Denver, you know, they've, they've, been, they've been having this clock on Michael Porter Jr.'s rookie extension coming up. 
as like a barometer for their decision-making. And that, that plays a huge factor in their decision-making to trade for Aaron Gordon. I mean, it's definitely not a, not a coincidence that Aaron Gordon's contract expires the same time that Michael Porter Jr.'s rookie deal expires. And Denver is considered to be one of the best front offices in the league right now. And Jamal Murray gets hurt and they're kicking around and, you know, they built this thing organically and they didn't tank. I mean, they got lucky with Jokic falling to them at 40, whatever, or not falling to them, but even taking him there, like kudos to them for taking him. They didn't think he'd do that, but they've had a path and a strategy and a plan just like, you know, Miami has around Jimmy Butler. And now they're trying to, to like use this gap uh, of his prime, and the end of his prime before Bam gets to that next step and he's you know able to be whatever. Like smart organizations are always in a uniform direction and have a timeline in place. Um, and that's why I think we're hearing that that buzz were coming to play with like Golden State and Portland with Dame and Steph, like timelines and 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 your 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 overall trajectory. Like when you're when a franchise has a has a and a final destination in mind on a certain schedule, I think that's that's a good place to start. Boy, that echoes so many things we've said about the Mavericks front office and, and the ideas of the the importance of the coming summer and 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 perhaps, you know, failures big and small over over the past couple of years. You know, I, I think this isn't the podcast to, to fully get into that. I, I have promised uh, the listeners some offseason looks at uh, what's to come and, and how things have gone. But uh, but that but that that is that's fascinating. You're going to spill some tea in the offseason, if you will. I don't know. Is there is there tea to spill? I mean, if there is, it's uh, it's I, I'm kind of like a cat on a counter. I'm definitely you know that's that's kind of all all journalist. You 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 put some tea in front of me. I can't help. I can't help it. But uh, but yeah, that remains to be seen. Discover the latest collections from David Yerman, as seen recently, styled on basketball stars like Jaime Jaquez, Jalen Green, D'Angelo Russell, and others. David Yerman is a celebrated American jewelry company inspired by the beauty of art, architecture, and the natural world. The story of David Yerman begins in New York City with David, a sculptor, and his wife, Sybil, a painter and ceramicist. When the artists began collaborating, their goal was to simply make beautiful design objects to wear. Over 40 years later, the Yermans and their son, Evan, continue to redefine American luxury jewelry with timeless, modern collections for women and men defined by inspiration, innovation, consummate craftsmanship, and Cable, the brand's artistic signature. David Yerman's collections are available on davidyerman.com. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Where with your book would you think is best to start? Uh, I think what's most interesting to me is, is the Giannis stuff and then also some of the Porzingis draft. And, and then, of course, we, we have to talk about Luca as well and Luca's draft. Um, pick one. Your choice. Oh, I mean, I think 
the the thought of you know all these analytical minded guys rising to power drafting for that 14 class um you know that's obviously the real timeline but the book starts in 2013 at Nerlens Noel's draft table another former Maverick um as he's falling from 1 to 6 um John Calipari I bring you right to his to his draft room green room table in Barclays Center as John Calipari is losing his mind as Nerlens falling from 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 to 5 to 6 this is the guy who's supposed to be number 1 pick um and you know, at, at, that draft night was crazy. I remember Andrew Sharp at Grantland wrote the, the night the NBA got drunk. R.I.P. Grantland. Yeah, um, it was. You know, the Drew. It wasn't just Sam Hinkie trading for uh, trading for New Orleans and sending Drew Holiday to New Orleans the year after he became an All Star at 22 years old. It was also you know Boston trading KG and Paul Pierce to Brooklyn to start that whole rebuild from that era. And you know, there there would have been another trade. Oh well, Boston did trade the thirteen with Kelly Olynyk that year too, um, and at, for the Mavericks at, pick, right? Yeah, the Mavericks pick. Yeah, that's where the Mavericks were selecting, and um, that's where the Atlanta Hawks were trying to trade to get Giannis Antetokounmpo. And the Mavs are an interesting factor, and they overlap a lot with the story because they they were they were obviously you know big players or trying to be big players in the 2013 and twenty fourteen. Uh, free agency, and I think maybe even 2015 too. Um, Those all worked out super duper well. Exactly, um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, he was bringing Carmelo to his house and all that stuff. But what was interesting, so Danny Ferry was running the Hawks at that point in time, and he was transfixed on Giannis. I mean, everyone in the league had kind of gotten word of this gangly six foot ten kid from Greece. And we all, you know, have seen the footage at this point of him playing in some like middle school gym with kids who were half his size. And no one knew what to make of the, of the tape. Like the Rockets definitely looked at it. The Kings looked at it. I know Philly sent uh, an executive, Courtney Whitty and Sam Hankey to Greece to meet with him. But the Hawks were all over Giannis. Danny Ferry thought he had top five potential and thought he could be Giannis. Like the Bucks didn't think he could be Giannis, but they were interested in him and thought he had tantalizing potential. The Hawks like wanted to shut him down, but his, his agents really said no. But they they were the only team to get him in for a visit. They flew him in like under cloak and dagger to Atlanta. Danny Ferry didn't put him up in a hotel. He he had him in hosted in his house. He had dinner at Danny Ferry's kitchen table with his kids. They ordered Italian takeout food um, and just like envisioned you know dining with the future face of Atlanta. But the problem was they knew he wasn't going to fault on him at seventeen. Um, they had a suspicion Milwaukee liked him at 15 and other teams too, but Atlanta was trying to trade 17 and 18 to number 13 with Dallas and Dallas was trying to cut salary. They were not trying to take on two more first round, you know, guaranteed rookie deals. They were trying to get and clear and clear max cap space for that, not that, that 2014 year. And Dallas had zero interest. They even kept telling Atlanta that they're not even going to trade the pick. That's how you know much they were strong arming and stiff arming Atlanta's efforts. Sure enough, they do end up making that deal with Kelly Olynyk to Boston, and the Bucks are happily allowing Giannis to fall to them at fifteen. So, if Dallas didn't have this different agenda and were willing on trading down, because a lot of years a lot of teams would happily trade down from thirteen to get two guys at 17 and 18, like right now getting a good player on a rookie deal is super, super valuable in this NBA current you know, st- structure with the salary cap and whatnot. But Dallas didn't want to do that. And their, their stymieing of Atlanta led Giannis to, to the bucks. 
Can we pause to note real quickly that if there is a one-sided beef among fan bases, once your book comes out, Hawks fans either already are bitter that the Mavericks have Luka Doncic or are bitter that people or are bitter that they think that Trey Young can be Luka Doncic and they don't understand why people talk about them not having Luka Doncic. Now you throw the fact that the Mavericks are responsible for them not having Giannis on top of this. I mean, this is going to be a very, very angry fan base in one direction that is going to get no heat in return. Yeah, I mean, Woj did a three-part podcast um, about it a couple, I think it was like a year ago. Right. They kind of scooped me a little bit. But I will say I had heard this info before that podcast came out. Um, I had written it even. I had submitted my manuscript to my editor. Um, I have proof. But uh, no, it, it, it's... I, the nature I think, of book writing, huh? Yeah, I think the stories come out a little bit. But I think, yeah, the real visceral details of Atlanta, like... Their war room, they were floored. They were upset. People, they, you could hear a pin drop in that war room from what I had heard. And they they had difficulty moving on. Like they still drafted Dennis Schroeder. Um, and I think they came away with Bebe Noguera at that point too. Um, but they were devastated for sure that they lost. Out I mean, value wise, that's good value on the table. I mean, the, you know, just in a vacuum, most years, I mean, you're not seeing a team trade seven package 18 with 17 to go up four spots. That would have been a very good value deal for Dallas. To be fair to the front office then, I mean, it has reported a bunch of times that supposedly Donnie Nelson was into Giannis and got overruled for the sake of said cap space. So who knows? But if I'm Danny Ferry and I'm hearing, hey, I'm giving you really good value, I'm probably overpaying to get to this spot and you won't talk to me. Yeah. You can see the frustration. I think well, that's, yeah, I think that's the, that's the Mavericks perspective. Um, you good? Yeah. Okay, my bad. No. So yeah, that's that's the Mavericks angle here is that there was a there was a clearly a, a figure in the front office who who absolutely wanted Giannis. It is this is a very public at this point understanding. Uh, Cuban has has acknowledged that his his general manager, his team president, was telling him draft this guy who ended up becoming a star. And I believe Donnie Nelson viewed him in that way, like viewed Giannis as a Giannis. It just it wasn't a collective uh, consist. Uh, 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 consensus there's the word it was at a consensus in the front office in cuban and i think others as well were, were convinced that clearing cap space not taking on guaranteed money that that would come with rookie deals uh was the way to go that sets the table five years later for luca when i, I think that there was a consensus within the front office that luca was absolutely the, the guy to go for that it was worth trading up for him i don't think there is any person you know lobbying to maintain cap space in that moment but luca was absolutely donnie nelson's guy and the table was set that you know cuban was not when when donnie was this certain or this sure this convinced that there was an international star that was going to be the next big thing in the nba he was not going to overturn him again and i think that's that's exactly what happened and so i'm curious what what details you have from you know that night with with uh with which what's funny looking back is that dallas had the third worst record and I believe a tiebreaker, and and that's how they ended up at fifth. They they dropped two spots. Otherwise, it would have been a different story, and and wouldn't even been a trade up situation. Uh, but but they were they did fall to fifth, and then they're stuck, you know, being knowing that Luca wouldn't make it all the way to fifth, knowing that he shouldn't make it to third, but he could, and uh, obviously they were able to get the deal done. I remember, I mean, I remember we were at Marvin Bagley's, you know, pre draft party on some rooftop in the Lower East Side, and like. He thought he had a shot at going number two. And I was sitting there thinking, like, 
why like it's Luca. you were interviewing him I, I was just there for for the drinks i'm gonna be honest <laughs> and, and i remember being on that rooftop and there was all this talk about orlando wanting to trade up to three for mobamba and there was i mean the hawks definitely liked trey young and really thought that he was going to be someone to build around steph 2.0 and they they saw value i mean I remember talking to scouts and executives all throughout that year. Some people were saying they wouldn't even touch Trey in the top 10, being that they were afraid that his body wouldn't be able to hold up and for his size and defensively. I mean, he hasn't really had injury issues throughout his career so far, knock on wood. But, I mean, I think the the defensive aspect of of his body has been exactly what a lot of people feared it would be. Um, But for that, I mean, Atlanta saw value and they knew they could trade down and still get him. So they were definitely fielding calls, I think, all throughout that last week. I think even all throughout – the whole draft season that year. And you're right. I mean, Dallas was hot on pursuit for Luca the whole time. I remember when the trade actually got like finalized or announced or whatever, I wasn't surprised at all. I remember, I think you, you had a pretty good beat on it too, Tim. It, it was pretty uh, transparent, especially, uh, I mean, they, everyone was trying to figure out what the Kings were going to do. Like it was pretty clear that DeAndre Ayton was going one to Phoenix. Um, everyone was trying to figure out what that sack pick was going to be. And they were really considering Michael Porter Jr. Um, they really were hot on MPJ. They, I remember talking to somebody with the, with, the, with the Kings at that point in time. And it's it's what's ironic also is that Michael Porter Jr., part, he fell part mostly because of his back injury, but also there was, you know, intangible basketball IQ type stuff with him and, he like really graded out on the King psych test. I remember writing for SI at a certain point later on. And I think it was 2019 summer league. The Kings were like transfixed by him. Um, but Bagley became the guy too, for um, his, you know, next age, like modern day, big man scoring, you know, versatile type can guard one through whatever type guy. Um, once it became clear, Luca was going to be at three. I mean, I think that just opened the door for Atlanta to control the draft and control who was going to trade up and it go to the highest bidder pretty much. If, if Michael Porter's back holds up, do you think Sacramento takes him? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, he was the number one guy in that class all throughout high school. I, I, right. What he's doing yeah. right now is what he was projecting to be as a junior. Um, so I, I, I think if he stays at Missouri and, and, you know, torches teams from like what he's doing right now, I mean, he would have been the number one option in the sec. Like now he's like the third option in the NBA. Look what he's doing. So he, he would have been a top pick. I don't, I don't know if they would have taken him over Marvin. That's just like something I don't know, but he would have absolutely been like a real, real threat. Definitely. Yeah. I remember, you know, like his, his jump shop obviously is, is his, uh, you know, it's one of the best, one of the, t- I, don't, I don't want to put a number on it, but you know, it's one of the best in the leagues, but I remember, you know, not even having the sample size of college to at least make sure, you know, there's a difference between a good looking jump shot and a jump shot that, that goes in against, Pretty. you know, high level defenses. I remember, and I was, I was on the outside looking in, you know, and, and this, this, I think I wrote this, you know, two months before the draft, uh, just kind of speculating about various aspects of, of that one. But I remember with Porter, I was just like, I can't even be sure, you know, like NBA teams are going to have a better idea, but I don't, I don't think anybody can be certain that even, even that stuff's going to translate. And that, that is what's so interesting and fascinating about, you know, the way this, the way this goes, you know, the, the, the idea that, you know, you are, of course you're drafting on, on tangibles as, as players get younger, as you draft younger players and, and players with less sample sizes, like 
yeah yeah you're gonna miss it's it's inherent to the draft always and it's especially inherent to less of a sample size you have quite frankly and and part of why i wanted to cover the book or write the book i've covered the draft pretty extensively throughout my career that's been honestly that's kind of how i got my start i was interning at slam in 29 in 2013 um and this was kind of before draft twitter became a thing like no one was really covering the draft there was this weird period in may where like no one talked about the draft really until after the combine happened or after the lottery happened. And I was just getting on the phone with agents who like wanted to get their guys publicity. Um, and I, I find the draft so fascinating because so much resources and time and manpower goes into scouting these guys and interviewing them and working them out and evaluating them because a, a franchise and front offices, front office executives, you know, their fate is on the line and like, I understand why Dallas didn't take Giannis at 13 because if he doesn't hit and you take, you take a gamble on this gangly Greek kid who might suck and, and sacrifice your cap space, you're screwed. Donnie Nelson might be getting fired as much as he is, you know, as much as he was a partner with Mark Cuban, like that's a decision that can cost you your job. Michael Porter Jr. His back, if it doesn't work out and you take him in the top five over, you know, anybody that is a legitimate contributing player, you know, you're screwed too. You're getting fired. I mean, Denver had the opportunity to take him because they already had a huge, you know, infrastructure in place with the Okich and Murray and all that. But I, I understand why these guys fall a lot of the time because, I mean, the Cleveland Cavaliers back, if we flash back to 13, like they couldn't take Nerlens because they needed to, to show that they could take a step forward to make the playoffs. Like the context and the pressure that, that surrounds these picks, that surrounds um, the front office executives selecting them, I mean, it's real. These guys, at the end of the day, these guys are human beings trying to, to save their jobs. So I think that's so fascinating. Okay, a couple, couple quick hitters, and then we're going to get out of here. Uh, Mike, if you have any, uh, feel free to hop in as well. Uh, I, I guess I just want to know what's, you know, uh, not even the full story so much as like, is there one factoid with the Kristaps Porzingis draft that, that really sticks out to you or stands out to you? Uh, you know, everybody remembers him being booed. But I've just from your reporting, what's, what's the most interesting aspect from that? So, I mean, the most interesting aspect by far is how his agent, Andy Miller, was representing Nerlens Noel at the time. And Miller did everything he could to steer Przingis away from Philadelphia. When they had a pre-draft workout at Impact in Las Vegas, he made sure that agency staffers prevented Hinky from even having a conversation with Chris Dapps. They refused to schedule him for a workout there. At one point, they scheduled a lunch meeting or something like that in New York. And Hinky was in his car driving up there and Miller canceled it and said KP had food poisoning. Um, and like, but you know, he was this international man of mystery with, if you will, at the time that all these executives were trying to see um, the Lakers did get to work out in uh, Porzingis. He drove right from that Vegas workout to Los Angeles. His legs were dead. I mean, they drove, literally directly from the workout to LA, put him in a hotel. He worked out for the Lakers the next day. He was terrible. Like he said it himself to me. I I talked to Porzingis last season in New Orleans. I don't remember um, when, but on the road, met him in the away team locker room. And he was like, yeah, I knew I wasn't going number two. So at that point, I mean, they had, they had a promise from Phil Jackson at four. At that point, it was just about avoiding going to Philly at three, where the Sixers did take Jill Oka for and even still, like on draft night, Andy Miller and his people and Christoph Rosingas were like, oh, my God, Hanky could still take us. But just like we just said, I mean, they didn't have his medical info. They didn't have him worked out. 
They had just taken Nerlens and then Jaleel and then uh, Embiid. And Embiid broke his foot again a week before the draft. There was no way ownership was going to approve them taking the seven foot two, three, whatever he is guy without looking at his medical, without actually interviewing him at all. And I mean, it was by design. Like Miller did everything he could to steer Porzingis to New York at four. But even still, I think he could have called his bluff and taken him anyway. But it, it, it's it fascinating. It, yeah, it's fascinating too because I just finished Jerome Weitzman's book on the Sixers, um, which another recommendation, good dude, front of the program. And he had the other side, the Philly centric side, and they were obsessed and they they liked him. But again, everything you're reporting is what he had too. You know, it's definitely pretty reliable stuff of his agent was just not having any of it and throwing up wall after wall after wall. And to his credit, it worked out. He got him where he wanted him to be. I mean, as Dallas came to learn with Nerlens later on, he was very difficult to have on show up to things on time and be accountable and all that type of stuff, which, you know, he brought on by all accounts, but the way that Philly handled it internally and all the losing and whatnot, especially, I mean, Nerlens came and played that 14, 15 season and was kind of like a bit of a darling of that team. They, they by that January in 14, 15, um, the Sixers were like top 10 in defense that season. And he was the centerpiece of it. And um, they did like his intangibles, but the, 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 the day-to-day tug and pull with ownership and players and management and trying to get on one's page of, growing these players, but also being built to lose and wanting to tank and get another guy. It was tough. And Miller didn't want to put another one of his clients, another one of his center clients in the same exact situation. There was one thing that Nerlens was great at showing up to the halftime media hot dog line. Fantastic at that. So uh, let's give him credit. Let's give him credit. Talk, but, about, talk about what ifs for this team, right? <laughs> if he takes the deal that they offer him and he sticks around, that changes a lot of stuff. And I mean, the discourse at the time was how could he have turned it down? And indeed, in retrospect, that was a terrible choice by him. But it it's, was that, it's that a deal was in history. front of him. It's a different history. It's a different timeline. I've heard from reliable sources that it wasn't even 470. It was 474. I don't know if that number's out there. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I big, can't remember big, at this point. I can't either. But that's <laughs> turning that down was not the best choice. <laughs> Built to lose. I, I I still don't have my physical copy. It should be in the mail at any point. Uh, it's It's been in the mail for a little bit. I've read chapters here and there that uh, Jake's been kind enough to send over and uh, kind of was diving through the PDF earlier today. And I, I'm convinced I'm ready to read it. It's, uh, it's up next for me. I'm just wrapping up another book and going to slide Built to Lose right into the rotation. Buy it. If, uh, if, if this has piqued your interest whatsoever, just go grab it. Just go grab it. Why not? Built to lose, whatever the whole title is. I'm I. I don't know what that is. Built yeah, to lose we'll, the title, we'll, but pre-order we'll, and make sure that it wins on the Amazon charts. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's out now, so if you order it, it'll show up in a couple of days. And, and like I said at the top, um, you know, I talked to over 300 people for this, and the original stuff is like, it, it's it's all I can sell you on. I mean, there's there's so many scenes and story. Any NBA fan will. I mean. There, there's there's a there's a scene i haven't teased this on any podcast yet i'm giving this exclusively to you a scene in summer league 2015 in vegas you know a lot of teams they work out players um or they work out their teams at like some high school gym um there was all this drama about you know demarcus cousins potentially being on the trade block that year george carl coming in and wanting to trade demarcus i have details on why that came out publicly too but this scene is there's a scene where 
the whole Kings team is working out, practicing in the high school gym. Across the hall in the cafeteria, the soda fountain machines were still on. George Carl, Vlade Divac, DeMarcus Cousins, they're in a high school cafeteria drinking sodas and iced tea, and they're having like a kumbaya clear-in-the-air session while, while uh, you know, his staff is running the, the summer league players through some some scrimmaging. So um, there's so many details like that that I mean, there's not that much Maverick stuff in it, but we talked about, you know, Porzingis and the Giannis stuff. Any, any NBA fan, any NBA rumors guy, you're going to love all these details. And, and, and I, I, will, I will just say, you know, being in the business, right, because you hear this number 300 interviews, that seems like a lot. It is a lot. If Jake had a hundred interviews, that's a lot for a book. That if he did a hundred interviews, that's enough to write a really good book. Three hundred is a ton. There's going to be a lot in there. You're going to want to read it. Pick it up. Congrats, Jake. Thanks for hopping on. Hopefully, we will run into each other sooner than later. Something we haven't done in uh, an unusually long time because of reasons that uh, I think most people know. The pandemic. We didn't have like a falling out or anything. But uh, I'll see you soon. I appreciate you hopping on. Uh, Mavs, uh, Mavs fans, listeners, uh, we'll be back next week. Very geared towards playoff content. I, it's it's that time. We might even know the opponent by then. I, I think we'll probably we'll probably wait for the play in, um, and then uh, so so it might be a day late depending on the the timing and, and as we kind of wrangle up a guest. But we're gonna preview a playoff series. See you guys then. Don't fight the future. Please be nice to Luca. Future four time MVP. Oh my god. Oh! Shut it down. Let's go home. It's a wrap, Doug. That is a wrap. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.